This is Richard Scrace for Global Public Media. A few weeks ago, the UK government published an energy review. The aim of this review was to set out how the UK would get its power over the next several decades. I'm asking a series of scientists for their response to this review and then to explain to us how different types of energy might fill the energy needs of the UK for the future. Today I'm speaking to Dr David Hart. He's the head of fuel cell and hydrogen research at Imperial College at the Imperial College Centre for Energy Policy and Technology in London in the UK. David, I'd like to start off by asking you to comment on the energy review that was published recently. I don't think that what came out of the energy review was a great surprise to many of us who had understood the context in which it was held. The UK had an energy review about three years ago, which was a very detailed analysis of all aspects of energy. This was really something of an update of that, and largely to try and look in more detail at the question of whether or not we might need nuclear power in the future. That was really one of the the big underlying themes. And so when a lot of the headlines, certainly, of the Energy Review were about nuclear power, I I think that came as no surprise. There were some other interesting aspects. There was quite a lot of support for renewable energy, uh, which I think is a a very good thing, a very important corollary to, to some of the other aspects. And there were mentions of a number of other issues, but there was much less detailed analysis than in the previous review on energy efficiency, on transport, on a whole range of different technologies that we may need to take up. What do you think in particular was missing from the review that you'd have liked to have seen in it? I think, to be honest, that there were two aspects. One is that even with the analysis of of nuclear that they did do, I'm not sure it went into quite enough detail. Uh, so I think there was a little bit of disappointment from partly from the, from the nuclear power associations and the electricity supply industry side, but also from others that, that really the picture still isn't 100% clarified as to whether we really are going to go for this or not. And I think it was probably a little bit of a, an opt-out almost in, in a number of other areas. I think there are areas where we could take a, a bold step forward and try and support new renewables, we can try and support hydrogen and fuel cells in in a bit more sophisticated ways, and we really didn't look into those into a great deal of detail. Do you think this failure of detail is a lack of capacity in our civil service, or do you think it's because the politicians didn't ask the civil servants to, to go into it? I think it's a mix of both. I think it's not a lack of intellectual capacity within the civil service, but there certainly has been a reduction in the number of people who are able to undertake this kind of work. There's been a significant reduction in the number of people who have a a strong background in energy. And one of the interesting things that happened in in between the previous review and this one is the setting up of uh, the UK Energy Research Centre, which is really specifically to try and gather together some of the aspects of UK energy research which were otherwise probably not corralled into one area and understood. So I think there was certainly support from the UK ERC and from people at universities, people with expertise who were helping the civil servants. But I think there was a deliberate attempt by the politicians to try and focus down on some of the questions and not to have the same sort of very detailed long-term analysis that had happened only three years previously. Whether or not that was the right decision is really very political and uh, I'm, I'm not well-placed to comment on the politics. But I think it was uh, an opportunity missed for one or two technologies. I'd like to talk in some detail about your own area of technology, of the use of hydrogen in fuel cells. 
and I'd like to try and see what role hydrogen might take in the UK economy, in the energy economy, uh, over the next few decades. Can I start off by just asking some straightforward questions, really, about how this hydrogen economy might work? How exactly could the hydrogen that we'd, we'd be burning in the future be produced? The whole key about hydrogen is that it's not an, uh, not an energy source. You can't mine hydrogen, you can't dig for it. You have to produce it from other forms of resource, be that uh, renewable electricity, be that biomass, be that natural gas, oil, coal, all sorts of different things. And so this diversity is very attractive, but it also means that hydrogen can be, in inverted commas, a good or a bad thing in terms of climate, in terms of efficiency, in terms of energy use. What we are likely to see is a transition. Uh, in the early stages, hydrogen uh, will start to be introduced, being made from the cheapest sources possible, from natural gas, from possibly coal gasification, because that will be a way to open up the market. And that, in and of itself, won't solve some of our energy security problems. It won't solve some of our CO2 emissions problems. But it will start in train a process whereby the technology becomes cheaper, people become accustomed to the use of hydrogen, and if there is a political will, which there should be from the very beginning, clearly stated, to move to cleaner forms of hydrogen, then over the longer term we can generate it, as I say, using renewable energy, for example. Wind power can be used to power electrolyzers to produce hydrogen. We can use different forms of biomass, gasified or otherwise, to produce hydrogen. And that does help the energy security balance. That does help to bring down our climate change emissions. I can imagine in a country like the UK where wind could theoretically provide about a third of our energy, where when the windmills are turning and nobody's taking any demand, that, that electricity got used to produce hydrogen. But then you've got a problem of storing and transporting the hydrogen. How's that done? How's hydrogen actually stored and how's hydrogen transported? Hydrogen's an interesting gas. It, it's not very much different from natural gas in many ways. You can put it in pipelines, you can put it in compressed tanks, but it has a much smaller molecule, so it it's finds it easy to escape if there's any small possibilities of leaking. And it can also diffuse through certain materials. It's very light as well, so that once it's escaped, it, it tends to diffuse very rapidly into the atmosphere. So in some, in some senses, it's easy to lose. But there are industrial gas companies, there are oil companies who've handled very large quantities of hydrogen in industrial processes for 100-odd years. And so we do know how to do that. The interesting question is how we deal with it in public spaces because it has different characteristics from natural gas, from petro liquefied petroleum gases, from the sorts of energy that we're used to dealing with at the moment. And the question is how we make sure that we are actually achieving what we set out to achieve because hydrogen needs to be compressed to much higher densities than natural gas does in order to carry the same sort of amount of energy or it needs to be liquefied, something that we know how to do very well but which also uses quite a lot of energy in the liquefaction process in order to store it in such a dense form that we could use it in things like transport, for example. So do you see um, liquid hydrogen as being used as a fuel for transport rather than hydrogen press pressurised into a tank with perhaps some sort of chemical structure in that tank which can absorb some of the hydrogen? There's a lot of work going on at the moment in terms of hydrogen storage research, particularly for storage on board automobiles. And at the moment, all of the car companies that have demonstration vehicles have compressed hydrogen demonstration vehicles because that's a relatively simple, straightforward answer. 
There are some cars out there running using liquid hydrogen. That works quite well in terms of how much energy you can store on board the vehicle, so you have better range. But you have a problem that the hydrogen is stored at minus 253 degrees C. Keeping it that cold is quite difficult. You need very sophisticated multi-layer vacuum insulated tanks and there will be some loss of hydrogen from those tanks as it warms up gradually it turns into a gas the pressure builds up and that has to be released in a controlled way every few days to the atmosphere so you will get a slightly loss of hydrogen unless you're using the vehicle all the time as you mentioned there's lots of interesting work going on in terms of other things in terms of for example metallic compounds or, or carbon-based compounds which will store hydrogen in a physical way, so either chemisorbed or physisorbed into the structure itself. And that's something that really there hasn't been a, a full breakthrough in, but there are a lot of people working to understand if there's a solid state way of storing hydrogen, which is low pressure and not too low temperature, that will enable us to use it easily in our cars in the future. Assuming we find a suitably cheap way of, of storing enough energy to get us from A to B, How's that hydrogen actually going to be burnt in a car? Do you think it'll be burnt in an internal combustion engine, or do you think it'll be burnt in some sort of fuel cell? The most efficient way to turn hydrogen into useful motive power is to put it through a fuel cell. And a fuel cell is a device that electrochemically reacts the hydrogen with oxygen in the air and generates an electric potential difference, so, so allows a current to pass through a motor. And that's a very clean process, it's a very efficient process, it's a, a solid state process, very few moving parts in a fuel cell system. It's very attractive intrinsically, it's a, it's a nice physics-based solution. Fuel cells are not yet at a stage where they're cheap enough, where they're robust enough to use in vehicles in, in the mass markets. There are lots of demonstration vehicles. We have buses in London which have been running on fuel cells for the last two and a half years very successfully. There are cars. There are a number of other things. But people are looking at trying to make a transition towards more hydrogen vehicles, and that, I think, will also include internal combustion engine vehicles. Internal combustion engine vehicles, such as the ones we use today, can run on hydrogen with slight modifications. And although they're not perfectly clean, as fuel cells are, they have very, very low levels of emissions. Uh, they produce water vapor, maybe a little tiny bit of NOx, which is easily controlled. And they offer a much cheaper alternative through a fuel cell. We've been through 100 years of development of the internal combustion engine. We know how to mass produce them. And so there are people looking very hard at that as a way of introducing them in the near term. Near term, in terms of the hydrogen economy, you mentioned the fact that there's a couple of experimental buses running here in London um, using hydrogen as a fuel. How long do you think it'll be before hydrogen's produced in a large enough quantity to start to be uh, fuel fuels even even a percent or two of, of the UK fleet? We're talking about one or two decades. Uh, simply the inertia in changing the UK fleet, even if fuel cell vehicles were available today. If we think about the replacement rate of the UK fleet, which is very approximately once every 10 years, then if everybody went out and bought a fuel cell vehicle today, it would nevertheless take 10 years to, to get them out into the market. And they're not yet ready. They may well be ready in the next three or four years. The announcements of the automotive manufacturers are becoming more bullish in terms of when they will have vehicles out uh, in production. 
But even then, they won't necessarily all be in the UK. They will be in very targeted areas where people have the right characteristics. They're environmentally aware. They have high disposable incomes, places like California, like Tokyo. There will be places where these vehicles are introduced earlier because there will be a limited number of production lines that can build the vehicles. So in terms of the UK economy and, and percentages of fuel, we're probably looking at 2020 before there is an appreciable amount. And even then, it's, it's not tens of percents or, or 50 percent. It's probably 5 percent, assuming things go well. What are the main obstacles to moving to a hydrogen economy? I wonder if you could perhaps break it down into sort of technological obstacles and uh, regulatory obstacles. I think there are a wide range of things, which some of which fall into technical, some of which fall into regulatory, and some of which fall into other areas such as social behaviour and expectations. In terms of the technology, hydrogen production technology is relatively well understood at large scale. It's actually reasonably cheap to make hydrogen in very large-scale chemical plants. It's much more expensive to transport it around because it's a very light gas, and moving it actually adds an enormous amount of cost. But production is, is not a big issue at the moment. The fuel cell side of things, fuel cells are such a great, fantastically interesting technology for hydrogen use that, if they work, can drag hydrogen through the market, not from a supply-push perspective, but from a demand-pull perspective. And so if they can be made cheaper and more robust quickly, then that will be a great help. Unfortunately, we, we still have interesting materials issues to solve in terms of the fundamental properties of fuel cells. And so although I don't think there are any real absolute showstoppers in there, it will take a few years. So there are technical issues with fuel cells particularly. There are technical issues with hydrogen storage. We can, if we want, take the hydrogen storage expertise that we have now, the technologies that we have now, and build a functioning hydrogen economy. It wouldn't be as good as what we would like. It wouldn't be perfectly efficient. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a perfect replacement for what we have now. In terms of regulatory issues, actually the regulators are working reasonably well to try and make sure there aren't too many barriers. More of the barriers arise in terms of simple either vested interests or the, the inertia of the status quo. We're very happy with, for example, our transport system, at least in terms of how the technology works. I have a car, it functions very well, I get into it, I start it up, it starts instantaneously, I can fill up with petrol all around the country or diesel. I don't have any problems with that. Taking that system, which works very well in every aspect except for its environmental performance, and substituting another system, which at the moment doesn't work quite as well, is a very difficult thing to do. You have to build up the infrastructure, you have to make people comfortable with the fact that, to start with, there won't be as many places to refuel. To start with, their vehicle probably won't perform exactly the same way as they're used to. There's a, there's a very difficult transition there to be made. So that's partly about technology development, but it's partly about people's expectations and acceptance. And then, of course, there are issues simply of, of education and understanding. Hydrogen is a new fuel, a new technology for many people, and therefore there's unfamiliarity. Some people have worries that it may be risky. It's a fuel. It contains energy. Certainly it can burn. Petrol can burn. Natural gas can burn. You may well have accidents that are to do with hydrogen. If they happen early on, that can, that can set back developments quite a long way. So there's a lot of education to be done. And one of the great things about the London buses is that people who've ridden on the buses say, well, yes, I've been on a hydrogen bus. It was great. It was quite quiet. Uh, 
didn't notice anything particularly different, seemed to work well, and apparently it has no emissions. I'm quite happy with that. And so they're much more comfortable with the technology. So there's a, a whole range of social issues which, which are not just around regulatory and technical obstacles. It's interesting you mentioned the, uh, the bus is quieter. Is that because it's, it's running on an electric motor rather than internal combustion? Yes. The buses that are running around London at the moment are not much quieter than the conventional diesel buses because they're a first-generation technology. And what's happened is that they've, they've taken out the diesel engine and, and stuck in a, an electric motor and a fuel cell, which is not optimised. But nevertheless, the fuel cell itself makes no noise. What makes noise are the electric motor to some extent, and then there are compressors and air blowers which are there to pump the hydrogen around the system, and you can hear a different type of noise. But in comparison with a diesel engine, which has a a typical heavy thud to it, really there there can be quite a considerable difference, and people like that. People find that uh, a much less tiring way of getting to work, for example. Well, not just a case of getting to work as somebody who's woken up regularly by buses passing. It would be really nice to have a, a, a quieter vehicle. I'd just like to return for a moment and just explore the technology of fuel cells in a, in a little bit more detail. I, as I understand it, for the fuel cell to work with the modern fuel cells, they use metals as a catalyst, and those metals are rare and expensive, and that might be an obstacle to the large-scale introduction of of fuel cells. I mean, is that correct? And are there some feasible alternatives to the metals that are used at present? You're right. The catalysts that are used at the moment are typically platinum-based, uh, with perhaps small amounts of palladium or rhodium, depending on the type of fuel cell. And platinum is a scarce metal. Uh, it comes from only two regions of the world in any great quantity: South uh, Africa and Russia. And so there are interesting issues to do with supply. In the foreseeable future, the demand for platinum for fuel cells, even if we were to produce tens of thousands of vehicles, is not a significant issue at all. It's a very small amount of platinum that's used in the vehicles. People are looking at ways of reducing the amount of platinum. People are looking at alternatives to platinum. They're looking at other types of metals as catalysts. They're even looking at enzymes as catalysts. They're looking at all sorts of curious uh, biological processes which might be used instead of, of platinum. At the moment, there isn't anything that stands out. But I think there are two things that give me hope. One is that actually the reserves of platinum are very large. There are issues potentially to do with sustainability as to how you mine platinum, how deep you have to go, what the energy costs of doing that are. They need to be looked at very carefully. But in terms of the amount of platinum that's required, I think there's, there's enough there for a considerable period of time. The other thing is that if you look at the platinum that's used today, a lot of it goes into catalytic converters. And there's a very efficient process by which that is recycled. Catalytic converters are worth money because of the value of the platinum. There is an industry which is something like 98% efficient in terms of getting the platinum out of the catalytic converters and back into new catalytic converters. And that is absolutely something that would happen with fuel cells because of the platinum that's in them. So it's not all new platinum that's coming in. There's a small amount of new platinum that's coming in, and the rest is going around the same chain as it was before. So there are economic drivers that suggest that people will be able to afford to pay for the platinum and and, and will want to pursue that. So I don't think that's a a big showstopper. If we have hundreds of millions of vehicles at some point in the future, then we may well come to a supply issue, but that's a long way off, and I think by then we will certainly have reduced the amount that we need, and we may well have found alternatives. 
Where's the most research taking place into the hydrogen economy? Is it in the US? Um, how's the UK doing? Would you like the government to spend more money on research in the UK? That's a very leading question, I think. <laughs> it's also a difficult question to answer because it depends how you measure research. Uh, in terms of the amount of money that's being spent on hydrogen research, uh, the US and Japan are clearly leading, but then they tend to spend more money on research in different areas anyway, and they have a bigger economy than the UK. But proportionally, they're certainly spending more. There are one or two other places which are interesting. The, the, the Norwegians are spending quite a considerable amount of money. The Germans have uh, a history of, of hydrogen and fuel cell uh, research. And places like France, which until relatively recently were not very committed to the hydrogen economy, have, have done an interesting U-turn and, and within the last two years have put in place a considerable amount of funding and some quite strategic alliances between the major research institutes and the government and, and, and industrial organisations to see how it might benefit France to be leading in this. Clearly, I, I think that it would be great if the UK government would put a little bit more money in. We've come forward quite a long way. When I started doing this 10, 12 years ago, I was one of very, very few people in the UK looking at hydrogen energy from any sort of context. And now there are well-established groups, not only at Imperial, but also places like Birmingham, Glamorgan, the Policy Studies Institute. There's a whole range of people. Fuel cell research has a, a longer history in the UK, and there are a number of good groups scattered around the country. But we don't really, to my mind, have critical mass as yet. We don't have continued guaranteed funding where you can really build up a team and keep the team. There's, there's still very much an element of the academic searching for money at the end of every three-year funding period and hoping that you'll be able to build on the research that you've done and not have to move in a slightly different direction. So I think that's a, a very important area. I don't know if there's any other particular point you'd like to make, any questions that I should have asked you and haven't. I think things that is always important to be clear about is that hydrogen isn't a sort of panacea. It, it, it's not the perfect answer to all of our problems. There are very complex issues to do with what resources you use to produce it, whether those resources could be better used in other ways. So, for example, if you have renewable electricity, actually most of the time it's better if you put it into the grid and use it as renewable electricity. It's only in cases where you may have more than you require at certain times, like you said, where you, where you need to store that electricity, but converting it into hydrogen makes sense because there's an, there's an efficiency loss. But there are also lots of places where, on an individual basis, from a, a micro-generation standpoint, it's actually quite intriguing to understand the possibilities that hydrogen gives you because you can use it to generate electricity for your home but you can also use it as a fuel in a car and so it's unusually versatile uh, certainly in a, in a future conceptual hydrogen economy you can transfer it between different energy sectors which is something we don't really do at the moment and it has quite intriguing knock-on effects in terms of markets in terms of how people do things it's a very complex issue Hydrogen, I think, is going to be part of the answer for the energy future. I'm, I'm perfectly convinced that it's going to be an important part. I think it's going to be very important in transport, particularly, because transport is a difficult place to replace the fuels that we have now and have a significant environmental benefit. And hydrogen gives us the opportunity to do that and to do something better. Fuel cell vehicles could be better than the vehicles we have now. They're not yet, but they certainly could be. So there, there, are, there are drivers in there but it's complex. We, we have to remember that it's complex. We have to look at all of the issues. We can't just look at one of them and say, well, we've solved this, because there are other things always coming up in the background.
David, thank you very much. That was, that was really interesting. This is Richard Scrace for Global Public Media. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. David Hart from the Imperial College Fuel Cell and Hydrogen Research Centre.